Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Stephen Salt. Stephen is the co-founder and CEO of Rivalry, a Toronto-based sports betting and media company offering fully regulated wagering on esports, traditional sports, and casino in over a dozen markets, including Ontario, as well as jurisdictions outside of Canada. Rivalry operates at the intersection of esports and entertainment with a unique content and brand strategy that focuses on becoming the leading betting and entertainment destination for its overwhelmingly millennial and Gen Z consumer base. Welcome, Stephen, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm in my basement in Toronto, Batherson, St. Clair area, like Witchwood Barns and all that kind of stuff, which people are probably familiar with. So, yeah. And I'm sure you transitioned much easier than an old geezer like me, but was it because of COVID you had all the flexibility to you know not have to be in an office or is this always the way it was for these new generation companies? We were always kind of a little hybrid, even like pre-COVID. So we, we started in my co-founder's basement in 2017 in Chinatown. And then um, we, because the business is like international, we, we only recently launched in Ontario because it only went legal here about a year ago. So we, we predominantly operate in like South America, Southeast Asia and elsewhere in the world. So the company even pre-COVID has always had people everywhere. We do a bunch of our stuff in Toronto, but we do have an office in Toronto. We have an office that's like Adelaide and Spadina. If people know like the Whatabagel on Spadina or like right near the Whatabagel on Spadina. So yeah, we do have an office, but um, I'm I'm kind of hybrid because I'm not in engineering and, and, and I do things more with the global team, I'd say. So yeah, I'm, I'm hybrid and, and I'm doing fine. My My kids let me sleep today so yeah not not feeling as tired as i am sometimes well that's great well i have to tell you Stephen, this is likely to be a, a nightmare interview for you unless you have really exceptional patience i want to set the table for you i'm 53 years old you are going to get some ridiculous questions based on my understanding or lack of understanding of both gaming and gambling in the current day let's set the table what you're up against in terms of gaming i was there in person for the introduction of Pong in my neighbor's uh, wood-paneled rec room on their state-of-the-art Atari 2600. And for me, gaming's mind-blowing uh, zenith, I guess, was the arcade game Dragon's Lair with its laser disc and animation. I could control this. That's the extent of my kind of gaming. And when it talks about competitive gaming, you know, <laughs> the, the documentary, I don't know if you saw, Donkey Kong, King of yeah, Kong, that's great. Fistful of Quarters, all about these nerds trying to get the score to flip over. In terms of gambling, my world was March Madness office pools, NHL playoff fantasy pools. We'd have to write out every single player for all 16 playoff teams on a big piece of paper, stick them to the wall. Everyone had to schlep over to one central location at one time on one day to do this fantasy pool. And if I wanted to bet on actual sports with actual money, my world was Sports Select, a precursor to Proline. I had to hit a multi-game parlay, horrible odds, and I I couldn't even bet on basketball because they had to remove basketball as a precursor, the government did, to getting the Toronto Raptors. So with all that baggage in mind, Stephen, in the words of Denzel Washington in Philadelphia, you're going to have to explain things to me like I'm an eight-year-old. Let's start. Big picture, betting industry overview from 30,000 feet. There is traditional sports gambling, casino gambling, and gaming slash esports gambling. Are these the three main betting silos? And do they all fall under the umbrella of iGaming or internet gaming? Yeah, they do. I think most people would just look at 
it, it more is two silos, which is just sports betting, which encompasses traditional sports and esports, and then and then casino, and it all yeah falls in online gaming or iGaming. I think with esports, what we've been saying to people for a long time to try to explain it simply is you have an entire generation that grew up on the internet, myself included, where you know we're we're yeah children of the internet in a way, so we watch a lot of internet based content. And competitive gaming is what we would consider almost like the internet sport. So if you were born in like the, you know, anywhere in the 90s and up, you've been essentially interfaced with the internet in a very direct and literal way. Uh, I know I was and most of my generation and certainly Gen Z and, and those from there on. So watching and consuming content on the internet and then gaming being quite literally like the most popular content category on the internet period, the most highest percentage of viewed minutes on youtube every year most frequently uploaded largest category by far therefore people play these games a lot and then they play them competitively and yeah if you grew up on the internet watching competitive gaming feels as organic as um, watching mlb or nhl or whatever it may be and then from the perspective of someone older that may still think it's very bizarre to watch it's mostly five versus five. So you're watching five players on one team play five players on another team in a competitive setup. So yeah, this isn't like me betting, playing you and we us betting on ourselves. This is watching the exact same as watching the Leafs versus the Senators. There's no difference whatsoever. And there was a great little comic strip that we used to include in our initial investor decks when we were first raising money. Because when we were raising money in 2017, 16, we had to explain it very simply to uh, Bay Street type people that also are skewed older and thought it was crazy is it was like there was a dad watching, you know, throwing popcorn into his mouth, watching what looked like football on TV. His son is off to the side watching gaming on his computer. The dad walks over and is like, I don't know how you can, you know, watch other people, you know, play video games. Then goes back to sit on the couch and just lean back and is doing the same thing watching someone play football. So what we've always said is it's like, it's if you just completely like abstract the idea of video gaming from it and any like weird stigma or thoughts you have on it, you're just watching two teams play each other competitively in a thing that you like. And, and Stephen, to build That's on it. that, yeah. am I betting on Joe Smith playing League of Legends or am I betting on Joe Smith playing Madden NFL 2023? League of Legends. So yeah, sports sports games, so like Madden or NHL or NBA 2K, most people that play sports games are also sports fans. Therefore, they're interested in watching the you know physical world sport of the nba and then they will typically play nba or they watch premier league and they play fifa there is a competitive ecosystem like an esports ecosystem for fifa and nba but it doesn't compare to league of legends which is like the biggest game in the world uh counter-strike which is the second biggest and dota which is the third biggest these are like the three biggest esports these are like first person shooters or five versus five fantasy strategy games so those are the biggest games the the sports games are mostly played by the sports fans and doesn't translate at the same scale to an esport that like uh, a first person shooter does or or a more classic video game i would say and then when you talk about gaming and then you got gambling how do these intersect it's the same as betting on the leafs or it's or or betting on the patriots it, it's identical so as i said because the setup is just two teams playing each other competitively in a thing that you like Therefore, the betting markets and everything are fundamentally the same. You can bet on who's going to win, handicaps, who's going to win, the equivalent of like periods in in esports. It's usually like maps, like it'll be like a best of three maps or something like that. The same as a hockey games, three periods. So there's a lot of like fundamental similarities when you strip it down to the basics and the betting markets work the same way where it's got all the kind of in-play bets, uh, pre-match, props, handicaps, like everything. It's, it's, it's 
fundamentally identical in that way. And so let's dive down now into your company, Rivalry. What is Rivalry the company? And how do you fit into the kind of internet gambling universe? Yeah, we're we're just like an esports focused and esports first sports book. So if you think of like the score, DraftKings, FanDuel, very much a classic kind of sports book, traditional sports heavy, casino, etc. Rivalry is similarly regulated and functionally the same, but we focus on having like a world-class esports offering. If you were to look at any of Rivalry's marketing or go to the website and take a look at just like the aesthetic user experience, et cetera, it will become very apparent and obvious that the the demo that will find Rivalry interesting and compelling is probably under the age of 30 rather than the average traditional sports fan is over the age of 35 and the average casino player is over the age of 40. So we skew like one to two decades younger, um, which is kind of, in, in a sense, like the the opportunity set, but still doing it in a fully regulated fashion, obviously. Really, it was kind of birthed from, we saw a huge generational shift in like 2016, 2017, where you had young millennials, which were pretty much those born in 1990 and up, and then Gen Z, which is late 90s and up, that were now all like coming of age into these kinds of consumer experiences. So that generation, which is 40% of the world's population, is the largest generational cohort in history. They were now going from what we used to say was like a cheeky line is going from like a parent's credit card to an income. So getting into first jobs, having an income, et cetera, where they were now coming into things like consumer experiences, like sports betting, same as as investing. Like one of the other analogies we used to use that simplified it is it's the same as, let's say, if you're under the age of 30 in Canada and you've got your first job, you've saved a bit of money, you're going to have your first contribution to your RSP, TFSA, whatever it may be that's coming out of your own pocket, your propensity to use like wealth simple is much greater than going to like Scotia iTrade, for example. And it's, only, and, and it's not as if they do different things. Like you can go buy Apple stock on Scotia iTrade, you can go buy Apple stock on Wealth Simple, but from a marketing, um, user experience, aesthetic acquisition, customer support, the entire customer journey, as someone that grew up on the internet in the 90s and up, you will find the simplicity and uh, the ease of a wealth simple product feels like something that was very clearly built for you rather than Scotia iTrade, um, which feels like the thing your your dad does or like uses. So that that's it, it's very similar. Like you can bet on the same you know NBA Finals on Rivalry that's coming up as you can on the Score, FanDuel, DraftKings, everywhere else. But again, if if you're generationally from 90s and up, there will be something certainly about rivalry from a top to bottom brand, user experience, support, everything perspective that will feel very like organic to you relative to those experiences. Fabulous analogy. And I'm going to jump right in and say, if your user base is predominantly millennial, Gen Z audience, are they the ones with the money and the income to spend? Shouldn't you be going after a demographic that has all their money and leisure time, old retired guys like me? Yeah, I mean, like the average sports better is in their mid thirties and up. So it's, it's not, it's not, you know, so it's not a huge distance compared to our, our user base. Our average age is like 25, 26. They're, they're, they're not, they're, they're in a first or second job and been there maybe for a few years. So yeah, I, I mean, certainly the, the customer value and average revenue you generate per customer and deposit sizes and everything is, is higher with a older demographic. But at the same time, that is a demo that is, being hit constantly by every single operator in the space and oversaturated and over-targeted. There's not a lot of opportunity in going after the same person that every other sports book on the planet is targeting. And there's also just like not really a lot of room for innovation there anymore because that customer has a certain set of expectations around experience that 
is being so catered to and met that it's also just even at a personal level, like uninteresting and not exciting to just do that same thing that everyone else is is doing with a demo that already is frankly like perfectly satisfied with the experience there's not really a lot of like room there left to innovate i guess well i think something else that's changed huge is is betting is no longer just a transactional experience and you've certainly kind of been proactive about kind of pushing the shift to wrapping entertainment around the consumer product the brand experience Stephen, what do you mean when you talk about the transition from the transactional nature of betting to it being more a form of entertainment yeah, I think this is all. This is for like all consumer experiences, and I mean anyone that is listening that's trying to build a consumer product and target someone under the age of thirty, which I think most people are now, because that is like now the most valuable cohort, is probably finding this, or it's an insight that that might be valuable. Is we determined pretty quickly on this journey, and then even just speaking to you know different venture capital firms in North America, Europe, et cetera, that a lot of what's happening now in web-based consumer products, so um, yeah, anything that is not you know, let's say physical manufacturing type good is the product functioning transactionally well is like the minimum viable expectation from the customer. And it now needs to also be like the expectations are so high because the attention spans of the demo are getting are shrinking where it needs to now also be like intrinsically entertaining within the product itself. So what I mean by that is we want to inject entertainment into the rivalry product and platform beyond just making sure you can place your bet correctly and deposit and withdraw your money, which is like the basic thing that doing nailing that is critical. Like if you don't have that, you don't have anything. But then also, you know, there's a lot of like Easter eggs and humor and and fun that's like wrapped into the rivalry experience. We've got this thing called Quest, which is like a role playing style game layered in, into the actual website it, itself that doesn't necessarily always have to do with betting. We've you know built certain features that are common features within sports betting like a cash out feature but we call ours chicken out and it's got this whole like very bizarre you know aesthetic and and entertainment style like injected and wrapped around it our casino platform we spent months building where rather than just dropping like here plays casino games we created like a fake rivalry computer with like an emulated operating system that is like a really cheeky and bizarre um, Alice in Wonderland style Windows 95 computer that is like all these weird kind of we call it like thoughtfully bizarre like rivalry again kind of our humor and style that's like built into it so like reasons to kind of stay on rivalry that aren't just to get in and get out which used to be what using something on the internet was about now because people spend so much time online it's like how do you wrap more entertainment around an experience that people actually kind of want to stay mm-hmm. uh, and spend some time there so the other example would be like I mean, Canadians may not be as familiar with it, but in the US, you have like Venmo and you have Cash App. They do the exact same thing. <clears throat> That's like a really simple fintech style product. It's just like e-transfer. It's like our equivalent of e-transfer. It's just money transfer. They do the exact same thing. There's nothing like novel about these, you know, person A sending money to person B, but Cash Apps, everything from the user experience, marketing, it's like really integrated into kind of hip hop culture and a lot of these like different things that they've done with the brand that makes a younger generation have a different alignment with the brand even though it functionally just does a thing that has existed for a very very long time and they can go off and use venmo but they tend to use cash app because their favorite rapper in some video was just you know dropped it in in like one of the verses or something like there, there's all these like other layers you have to add to the experience now like the expect the bar is like so high mm-hmm. so it's about doing that everywhere if you want to find success building a consumer product on the internet now, which it really is building a brand 
yeah. having your own, you know, yeah. uh, it sounds like a lot of what you do has to be proprietary. Yep. Yeah. You got to build everything yourself. Most of the industry is like off the shelf, white label stuff in sports betting. We built everything ourselves, which was definitely, we did reinvent the wheel in some cases, which was pretty painful and felt pointless at the time. But I think we've, we, we've hit like a exit trajectory now where we were on the other side of like the pain and we're getting the value of it. So that, that was critical. Stephen, when you talk about betting, you're obviously talking about regulation. Please explain how you are regulated and where you are regulated. Yeah, we have multiple licenses. So what's been in the news a lot is obviously all the US-based state-by-state licensing that's been happening and the regulation over the last few years there, which has been kind of the, the, the thing that even probably spurred Ontario and some of the Canadian stuff to act. And Ontario is similar, or Canada is similar, where it's provincial licensing so ontario has a license we have a license in ontario therefore we can operate in ontario but most of the history of the betting industry and most global operators have multiple licenses they're not just like u.s licensed or ontario so we're similar where our very first license which we got in 2018 when we first launched the rivalry product into the wild is in a place called the isle of man so most people may not have heard from it heard of it but it's a it's a sounds like a fictional jurisdiction yeah to tell you yeah it's not, it's not, it's not like a weird offshore jurisdiction, like, like maybe some others, but, um, it's, it's, it's a crown dependency of the UK and it is like equidistant. It's a little Island, essentially in the middle of like the IRC. I think it's like equidistant from, you know, Dublin, London, and, um, uh, and Scotland where you can kind of get there. It's like right in the middle and it, it is a, it's essentially part of the uk in a in a sense and it's similar to another place like malta which is maybe more familiar to some people and gibraltar so these are the three main uh jurisdictions that offer global licensing so all the biggest sports books in the world including many that have ontario licenses like bet 365 which is like the largest sports book in the world betway which is the second largest most of these blue chip operators will have a license in one of those three places which is based off like UK regulatory standards. It's like super AAA high quality. It took us a year and a half to get that license. You have to be the diligence and everything. It's like the founders, directors, officers is crazy. You know, I, I, I literally had to have friends of mine respond to Interpol, like UK Interpol requests asking like, is Stephen a trustworthy person? And they had to write personal references back to like high school of, yeah, Stephen was always honest and seemed trustworthy to me. Like it goes that far back in detail. So this is like a very difficult license to get. It takes a very long time. There are certainly other jurisdictions that um, it is much easier to spool up and um, uh, they're a little, certainly lower quality, but because like rivalry always was, we're Toronto-based, uh, raised money from accredited, mostly Canadian investors, knew we wanted to take the company public at some point. We've stayed with like gold standard AAA uh, licenses from the beginning. So we've got a license in the Isle of Man. That allows you to take bets everywhere in the world where there is no local domestic license or uh, regulatory regime, which is most of the world. Mm. So outside of Europe, now the US and now Ontario and Australia, the other 100 plus, 150 plus countries in the world, they don't really the same as Canada up until recently didn't really bother to invest the resources and I guess have the the potential headache of regulating its own betting industry internally. So we can take bets from like most of, let's say South America and Southeast Asia via this license. And then the players that come in from these countries, because there's no local regulatory regime, they are regulated by our global regulator. Mm -hmm. So that gives us access yeah, to tons of different markets. And then we also, we were one of the first operators to get the Ontario license. So we were launched on the very first day, April of last year in Ontario. 
And then we also have a license in Australia because Australia regulates as a full country mostly and um, is one of the also kind of longstanding UK style jurisdictions where, yeah, also difficult to get a license, very high quality bar, all that kind of stuff. Well, obviously huge changes here in Ontario. Yeah. What's the difference between being an Ontario licensed operator versus a gray market licensed offshore operator? And I'm going to assume it's just, I guess it's the customer experience or my access to my money. Yeah, like, I mean, so Ontario, so Canada, I mean, partially why Ontario regulated is like Ontario and Canada is one of, up until the regulation was one of the highest value gray markets in the world. So converting that to regulated business in Ontario and the government taxing a thing that a business that was already happening, it's not super dissimilar to cannabis in, in some ways, made sense because now they're capturing the revenue onshore of a thing that was being generated fully offshore. So the value for the government is, again, is like revenue capture of a thing that's already happening anyways. The value for the customer is money in and out of the platform is much easier because when the thing is locally regulated and the banks therefore kind of approve and work with it, you can now do really simple things like interact to get your money or, uh, you know, or visa deposit versus payment methods for offshore operators can be a little slower and just take a bit more time. So yeah, the, the movement of money for the customer is way more fluid. The other is having a mobile app is more likely and easier when you have a local license than when you're not. So mobile apps, which therefore makes the customer experience, user experience better. And then even from a marketing perspective, when you're gray market, you can't really market locally in any way. I mean, there's a reason why everyone is now seeing and somewhat, you know, inundated with like commercials and billboards, et cetera, with all the regulated Ontario operators. And you never saw that stuff before is because it was offshore and you couldn't really do that locally. So from the operator perspective, it becomes a little easier in some ways to market, but then certainly like within the market, I think, you know, there's been more debate around this in Ontario. People are now feeling like the weight of constant, in a sense, like bombardment of gambling commercials, betting commercials. So yeah, there is customer benefit. There's revenue benefit for the the government and there is operational benefit for the operator as well. So it, it everyone kind of, in a way, benefits so long as it's done in a balanced way, I would say. Well, something interesting to me, Stephen, you are the CEO of a public company listed on the TSX Venture Exchange. You just reported your Q1 results. Congratulations, because the headlines were record revenues of $12 million, as well as all-time highs in the both the betting handle and, most importantly, gross profit. When you're a public company, the only thing that matters is the stock price. Does this not put pressure on you to produce today when, really, you're just in the early stages of building something that's expected to be huge in the future? future yeah we've always had to balance that i think it's still very difficult and we try to communicate that to to public market investors as well where you have to make decisions where the present value of that thing is greater than it may show up in the next one to two quarterly financial statements so making an investment in a thing that may bear fruit in a year that we're allocating internal resources engineering resources and costs and time to something that maybe theoretically we could have done something much shorter term that would have made the next quarter good, but we're doing a thing that we think will make the next five years great. So I'd say that the history of rivalry and our investors know pretty well at this point, and we've communicated it in our private shareholder letters when the company was private. And we've been pretty clear, I think, when we're public that we will essentially always make decisions that take a long-term view on creating like sustainable long-term value for shareholders and also get the company to profitability we we certainly don't forget that especially like in the current macro environment which is which is pretty tough even though investors are very short termist now especially in the current markets more so than before we would be compromising a lot of like our values and 
compromising the actual true long-term value for the company if we were only focused on doing the thing that's going to make the next few months great rather than the next few years. So I think we've always managed to to find some equilibrium there. Steven, you yeah. were the CEO of a private company, Rivalry. You're now the CEO of a public company, Rivalry. I would like to know what some of the biggest kind of challenges and benefits you experienced in this transition from private to public. I think being public's good. Like we we went public not really to raise money, but for operational benefits because we are in such a highly regulated industry that there's a lot of operational speed we actually got by being public and working with payment providers or third-party vendors where a massive part of that process is them doing a huge amount of due diligence to you and the company. And because we're public with a like highly reputable global regime with the TSX, it actually has allowed us to like get so much more speed like as a business, which is mostly why we went public at the stage that we did. Um, and overall, like I think like the transparency and accountability is actually good. It honestly keeps you it keeps you honest. So we we don't really really mind it. Is it a bit of a headache at times because you got reporting cycles and things that take up my time that I'd rather maybe be doing other things like for sure. But I think we we kind of knew the trade off and and we're still we're still happy with it. But yeah, I think accountability and transparency is critical to doing pretty much anything, whether in business or personally in life. So yeah, it's 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 acceptable in my in my view. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We got Gaming News Canada's Steve McAllister, North Star Gaming's Michael Moskovitz, the Toronto Star's fixer, Jack Lakey, and the King of Yorkville hairstyling, Gary Chowan. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365 wherever you get your podcasts. Well, you certainly don't create a public corporation out of the blue. So I am very interested in your origin story. Maybe you can tell us a little about your background and the path you took to founding Rivalry and eventually taking it public. Yeah, I personally used to play video games a lot, but I think anyone of my generation did. So yeah, yeah, born in 1990. So anyone from there and up played plenty of video games. My twin brother, I have an identical twin. So we played a lot of games with each other, you know, built in kind of second player. So yeah, I uh, grew up playing a lot of games, but very much also just, yeah, like kid of the internet, like spent a inordinate amount of time on the internet, uh, maybe more than I should have. But yeah, I grew up, grew up doing that and then professionally went into finance though. So I, wor- I worked in finance for, for a few years at an investment bank doing research, like equity research. So yeah, writing research reports on different stocks and doing lots of different things like that. This was kind of like early to mid 20s. And then I was continued to play games though, and there was the two most popular esports, which are two of the most popular games naturally, is a game called Counter Strike, which I mentioned earlier, and a game called Dota. In 2012, the publisher of that game created a system where you can buy and sell in-game items with other users. So when you play a video game, like if you play a role-playing game, your character picks up items along the way, and those are just the items that you you know, attached to your character for your weapon or how you look and maybe it gives you value, maybe it doesn't, all this kind of stuff. This is just natural in video games. What ended up happening is the scale of these games got so big and certain rare items that players were obtaining, other players wanted, but there was no way to transfer a thing that you got for, let's say a game called Counter-Strike, the items are called skins. So it's literally like, doesn't actually provide any value or change the gameplay. It's just a pure aesthetic for your guns, pretty much. So it's like, you know, a dragon looking tattoo let's say that is like the skin of a sniper for example and people were getting the rare ones they thought maybe other people want the rare ones so the publisher of this game created a in-game economy that swelled within a very short period of time to 
billions of dollars of transaction value, billions, where players in the Steam community store, it's called, you can trade an item that you got, either really rare ones or very common ones, and people are buying and selling them for for real money. Like the market started to attach value to these things based on rarity, the same as you would with things, let's say like in the real world even. So there were items that sold for pennies and there were items that sell for like tens of thousands of dollars, literally. Um, and it's purely aesthetic. So it's, you know, it's like wearing a nice, you know, watch or, um, a nice tie or something. It's, it's just, it, anyway. So that got really popular. I was a consumer of those, of those goods and those skins. And I was working in finance and I noticed that there was a lot of like pricing inefficiency in these items because what spawned really quickly after the game publisher created this system was third-party marketplaces also to transact these items. So you could transact them within the game publisher system and you could transact them externally. Now, the reason why you would do it externally is because in the game publisher system, even though you had to buy and sell these for real money, like $5, $20, $100, $1,000, you can't cash out. Like they didn't let you sell an item for $1,000 and then withdraw. They weren't functioning as like a bank for you can like withdraw the money. So naturally, people, though, that were selling $1,000 items, they're like, I don't want to just keep this $1,000 locked in the system and then have to just like buy more of their stuff. I want to like take it out. So people found a pretty savvy way of creating these like third party marketplaces where the way it actually worked, it was kind of interesting where everyone was still transacting. And this, this, this still exists today where everyone was still transacting in the system of the game publisher. And all that the third party sites were doing is they had many like bot accounts or like almost, let's say, dupe accounts in a way where they were acting as like a trusted third-party escrow service in a way. Mm. So you would trade your item, let's say that was worth $1,000 for a penny into, or nothing, like zero, into the third-party marketplace account. And then you would send money through PayPal or whatever the payment options were to that website, which would then hold the money. And then it would pass the money to the seller, the buyer would get their item. And then that's basically how it worked. Mm. So these third-party marketplaces got extremely popular and there were hundreds of them but there was also price inefficiency between them so an item that was selling on one marketplace for $50 you could sell it on another for $80 or something like ridiculous so I started trading these items the same that you would almost like arbitrage stocks in a way yeah. uh, where I would buy on one and sell on another and there ended up being like a huge community of people doing this making like so much money that you know I knew a kid that was at Guelph that was under the age of 20 that in a year cleared more than a million dollars of profit doing this. Crazy. Yeah. So like re- real money. Fast forward to like 2015, 2016, I was um, working finance for now at that point for like five years, looking to do something different. Thought this was a really interesting ecosystem. I thought there was clearly like the early innings of, again, a transition of a demographic going from a parent's credit card to an income, kind of like myself. And um, I thought that the marketplace business was really interesting as kind of the tip of the spear in some ways for like that transformation within like the gaming ecosystem. And then I reached out to one of the marketplaces, one called Loot Market, of one that that was a very large popular one and asked the guys there if I could just personally invest and kind of just participate and get involved in the business because I was just looking to kind of move out from finance and do something different. Uh, those guys were Ryan and Kevin, and we all kind of became co-founders um of what would eventually become rivalry because what happened from there is we became friends we were talking a lot about gaming esports their experience doing that they were older than me serial entrepreneurs built and sold a couple different internet uh, startups companies etc i was adding value from like kind of a different layer of expertise that that i brought to the table and then we yeah we, we created a company that was would eventually become rivalry which was hey let's take your experience building your money this site they were more software engineers let's take my experience in finance understanding gaming macro etc 
maybe we'll just like create a little fund and invest in gaming and esports businesses. That's what it was originally. In the process of doing that, we've started identifying what we thought were like the biggest opportunities of this like growing gaming and esports ecosystem that was really starting to like, you know, uh, blow up at that point in 2016, 2017 was like the real early innings of it. And then what was also happening as it gets a little more nuanced is that that skins marketplace that they were still running at the time. What we started noticing is a lot of the liquidity as in people coming to the marketplace to sell items was coming from these other fully very illegal websites, which were called skins betting websites. So the skins that I mentioned have real money value. So what people started to do with them is they started to use those skins as real money casino chips to bet on esports. Mm-hmm. So they took the dragon skin for the sniper, which had a $50 value, and it was a stable value because there was so much liquidity of these items. It wasn't like $50 one day and 100 the next. It stayed at around $50 for a while. That became a unregulated casino chip for websites that would then take skins as basically chips on the table to bet on uh, on the counter strike on esports basically so we're like okay like and, and at the time we were seeing all these different businesses in gaming and esports for a lot of different reasons we actually thought that a regulated offering on esports betting was a was the biggest opportunity in the gaming esports ecosystem at the time we still obviously think that's that's the case today so we wanted to actually invest in someone doing it. Then we had the data point of, holy crap, there's so many people doing this in an unregulated fashion, so the appetite must really be there. And we thought, okay, well, we've got the knowledge and expertise. We know the thesis. There's nobody really doing this. Let's just do it ourselves. And that was like late 2016, early 2017. Then we basically transitioned what was like an investment fund style concept to, no, we're just going to build and operate the thing that we think is the biggest opportunity, which is sports betting on esports in a regulated environment. And not not long after we decided that and started going down that path and like communicating that to investors, the Washington State Gambling Commissioner from a collective lawsuit from a bunch of parents who realized, why is my 14-year-old Johnny gambling on gambling online using these in-game items, went to the Washington State Gambling Commissioner who then went to the game publisher, which is domiciled in the US and said, you got to find a way to, you know, kill this system you've created that is enabling this like massive unregulated underage gambling uh, situation in esports. They did a pretty effective job at shutting that down, which then transitioned the people that were over the age of 18 into regulated uh, esports betting. But that was like right at the point in which we were starting to build rivalry, but it ended up like reaffirming that there was a regulated opportunity for this thing, which then helped to kind of raise money because we looked like we were, you know, prophetic in terms of like the way we were thinking about it, doing things. And then, uh, yeah, and then kind of rest is history from there. Got a license, launched the site, built the team, took the company public eventually, all that kind of stuff. Well, you did a great job there because tying gaming slash esports with gambling betting, I didn't see the thread. You've put that together quite nicely. Yeah, I mean, people people like to bet on things that they watch competitively. Like people bet on darts. People like darts is a very popular category. Like people just like to put skin in, in the game on a thing that they watch that's competitive, and that's it. So the other problem that comes to mind is little Johnny now is perhaps using his parents' credit card to gamble. Is this an issue and how will it be monitored or regulated? No, I mean, like that was the issue back then because little Johnny didn't have an income and he was using mom and dad's credit card to buy items in game, which they thought was like innocuous and innocent. And then he was transitioning that to bet on things uh, on on these other websites for a fully, again, this is like for effectively regulated online sports betting or casino operator you just can't do that like the kyc requirements around like know your client as in like how you determine the person that's coming into your platform is themselves 
you know, of age, who they say they are, the ID is valid. That stuff is like so effective now that you just can't get in using someone else's ID and not be who you say that you are. And then all that also has to tie to your payment methods, like the, the payment method that you provide, like the credit card or your interact or whatever, all the information has to line up. You can't come in as 24 year old Johnny or 25 year old Johnny and then use mom and dad's um, you know, bank account, which will have their information name that is like associated with it because then like there will be a mismatch and it won't go through the system. Mm-hmm. So this is just for, to be fair, this is for most like online transactions. Like most websites, even non-betting sites don't really want you signing up as one person, name and address of X and then using some credit card or payment method that is totally disassociated with that information. That is just like bare minimum AML, KYC and running a uh, an effective online product of any kind, I would say. But certainly for betting, it takes it to like the next level in terms of the importance. Esports versus traditional sports. Do viewers or participants, by participants, I mean the, the gambling public, do they see them as substitutes or complements? Esports and traditional sports? Yeah. Uh, I think they just see them as like even totally independent and, and, and siloed. Like it's just, I mean, saying sports is, is, is a massive thing because sports could be anything from ping pong to NHL, right? And saying esports is the same thing. Like we offer 15 plus esports on rivalry because there are many individual games that is the same as, yeah, you know, NHL versus NBA. So from our perspective, it's just, this is just adding to the catalog of competitive things that people watch. It happens to be digital rather than physical. But ultimately, as I said at the beginning of this, it's like all fundamentally the same. So we just look at it in the same class, really. So I got, uh, as you noted, a torrential wave of celebrity and sports endorsed yeah. ads <laughs> Wayne Gretzky Jamie Foxx are in my face all the time is there a Wayne Gretzky and a Jamie Foxx for esports no because like the way that rivalry markets is like we are much more like a Red Bull style marketing where our marketing we consider it we, we say like we, we do entertainment not marketing like what does J- Jamie Foxx up until he gets paid to do whatever the deal was from from the operator have to do with betting casino or that company in any way whatsoever he's just like a he's just a celebrity voice that got paid to to do like an ad read it has like no connection that makes absolutely no sense so that that to us is just like a very blatant raw piece of marketing and to me this is just like old school madman style marketing that used to maybe appeal to people a generation or two ago where you had the spokesperson that was some famous person that you know was selling you golf balls like it's 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 just like that marketing is so ineffective for the demo that we target that we ourselves don't do that. And and I'd say that therefore, like maybe that person does exist for the demo we target, but like we wouldn't grab them to then market rivalry because it has no connection. Like it makes no sense. So like a lot of rivalry success actually has been in not doing exactly that. It's in, it's in finding people that are like organic to the communities that we're interested in so let's say like in south america the league of legends community in south america is very vibrant and very big and it's different per country the chilean league of legends community is very different from the peruvian which is very different from the brazilian they also speak kind of different languages literally anyways and within those games within those countries within those communities there are large players or content creators that are important to the scene and well known the same as you have influencers just generally in the world and we will work with someone like that, but it's not in like a spokesperson way. Like we go in more again, like a Red Bull where when a surfer or a skier or a skateboarder or anyone in ext- like physical extreme sports signs to Red Bull, it has a certain 
resonance in that community where if you're a surfer and you get slammed by Red Bull, it like it means something. Or if you're a skateboarder and you're wearing a uh, Red Bull helmet all of a sudden, it like connotes a certain level of success in that community. And Red Bull doesn't just like give you the helmet and it's like you're a billboard now. They also will create like the biggest half pipe in the world for you and they'll do these like crazy events and activations or they'll like, you know, let you jump out of a plane mostly in or a little capsule mostly in space. Like they do these like insane things that are entertainment that happens to kind of then inadvertently be a form of marketing. But really the the athlete that works with them is by signing to Red Bull is enabled to do a thing because of the financial support from Red Bull that they wouldn't otherwise never be able to do. And it, and it makes total sense as part of the brand and what Red Bull does to do crazy shit with a skateboarder. Even though she's a big influencer, I will not see a Kardashian as the face of rivalry. No, no, exactly. Like it makes zero. Like even though that the, the Kardashians actually hit the same, let's say, demo that we would want in terms of just the raw demographic, but it makes no sense. There's no connection between a Kardashian and what rivalry does. So we work with like internet-based content creators in gaming in the communities we care about, and we create like very original, creative activations for them and their community that is purely entertainment for them and their community. Which then, when they're thinking about betting at some point they will maybe sway toward rivalry because we, we've done something that has added value to them and their life. Um, the same as what Red Bull does is if you've, if you've noticed other than like that one black and white little cartoony Red Bull thing, like Red Bull gives you wings that they've been running forever. That's the only, that's the only like ad they've ever run. Mm-hmm. All Red Bull stuff is like the Red Bull formula one team. If you've noticed like all the stuff that Red Bull does, they almost are never saying go to your local convenience store and pick up a four pack of Red Bull. You, you never see that. What they do is, is like the brand is is executed so strong in the form of entertainment that when you walk into a 7-Eleven, the probability when you get to an energy drink aisle that your hand is going to gravitate to a Red Bull can versus Monster is based on this like unco- unconscious, like intuitive thing that they've done by entertaining you. Yeah. That is what rivalry does. Well, you, you clearly reemphasize that move from transactional to entertainment. Yeah, it's, it's all tied to that. Yeah. I want to go back to the physical world. Shout out to past podcast guest, Bob Hunter, who is hard at work trying to get a shovel in the ground for a brand new 7,000 seat esports venue at Exhibition Place on behalf of Overactive Media. Stephen, I can assume you will be very excited to see this type of project get done. Yeah, it's great. Like, I think there, there's there's demand. Like the thing that we always point to in Toronto in particular is in 2016, which seems like a while ago now. League of Legends, which is, again, the biggest game in the world, the way that they do their playoff slash Super Bowl equivalent events is that the quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals are all in different locations around the world, large stadiums. The quarterfinal or maybe the semifinal came to the Rogers Center, and they sold out that entire venue for two days of games, which is like eight to nine hours. They sold out that entire venue in under 60 seconds. It sold out quicker than a Bieber concert. Uh, in 2016 for people to go watch League of Legends at a, at a massive stadium like that. So there is a lot more appetite for these things that I think people realize uh, is there. So yeah, it'll it'll be great. There'll be a lot of, yeah, a lot of different things to do there, I'm sure. Another big trend I want to ask you about, mobile gaming. Is this the next wave for e-gaming? It's important. Like even on Rivalry, we, we talked about in this kind of wrapped wrap-up thing we did last year. It's probably one of the fastest growing categories on Rivalry, I would say, is mobile esports, which again, if if people that are not familiar with gaming and esports, and hopefully a bit more now they are, already think that five people sitting at computers on a stage in front of 15,000 people versus another five people is weird. You can imagine because there are equally equal size events of mobile esports where it is literally 
five people sitting in booths on like holding their phone in front of their face in front of 15,000 fans going absolutely crazy playing five other people that are on their phones. But you have to think about it from like a economic perspective. If you go to Southeast Asia and South America, most people do not own a home PC because it is very expensive. Mm. Um, it's the same reason why console gaming is not really that big outside of North. People don't realize, but console gaming is actually mostly a North American and first world EU phenomenon. It is not that big elsewhere because it is very expensive to buy the latest Xbox or PlayStation. It's just not a thing that people do. So that's why like PC centers is a, is a very common thing in, in Asia, Southeast Asia, South America, where people will travel to a place that has a bunch of computers and that's where they play. Um, mobile is even easier because at a minimum, everyone has a mobile phone. For example, you know, in, in India, um, the biggest game is Mobile Legends. It's called Mobile Legends Battleground. It's like a, it's a Fortnite style game, I guess I would say. It's, a, it's a, like a Battle Royale style game. And these games will have millions of downloads in, in hours. The monthly active players, one of the biggest games in South America, that's mobile, mobile eSport and mobile game. It's called Free Fire. That game has 55 million monthly active users. So one and a half times the population of Canada is playing that game monthly as an active user. Um, so people don't realize like just the scope and scale where these populations are massive in these developing countries. They don't have access to PCs and consoles at scale. Everyone has a phone. Therefore, the rise of mobile gaming and mobile esports was in a sense like an inevitability. So um, it's a massive category. We, we do a ton in that region in mobile gaming, mobile esports, mobile esports content, mobile esports influencers, all that kind of stuff. That's incredible. I was not aware of the size, the scope. Steven Sauls, teenage, love playing games. Now that you're a quote adult, what are you playing and what are you gambling on today? I still play Counter-Strike, which was, which is still the most, like one of the most popular esports and even like the history of esports, like Counter-Strike has been played in a competitive format um, for 20 years now. So you could have watched esports Counter-Strike for, for 20 years now. Like it, it's, it's been going on for a while. And then you've even got in Korea another game called StarCraft, which is actually like a one-versus-one chess-style strategy game. They were filling 10 to 15,000 person arenas for that game in the late 90s, early 2000s. So it's been going on for a while. So I've been consuming and watching that content for that long. And then I've been playing Counter-Strike for... I've personally been playing Counter-Strike for about 20 years, also nearly 20 years. Um, so okay. I continue to play Counter-Strike. That's what you're yeah. playing. What do you gamble yeah. on? Um, mostly Counter-Strike as well, because I know it, I, I know it so well. So like I, I've been watching competitive Counter-Strike. You know, like the way that guys can get together and talk about uh, riff off on hockey players, football players going back 10, 15, 20, 30 years and and you know, people have memorized, you know, starting lineups for, you know, specific games and guys have like, you know, have that like encyclopedic style knowledge around it. I can sit with people also and talk about rosters and Counter Strike from a decade ago and name the specific players and know what games were like and highlight moments and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's similar in that way. Yeah. Do you bet on football and hockey and basketball? No, I don't. <laughs> It's amazing. What a shift. Yeah. Now, what's the status of fantasy gambling? Because uh, that's that was my only kind of bridge point between these yeah, physical yeah. office pools was I could make a fantasy team. Is fantasy sports still a thing or it's been precluded by now that it's regulated, you could actually gamble? Yeah, it it is. But 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 a lot of what like DraftKings and FanDuel were doing in the US where fantasy was massive is they were just preceding a regulated fixed odds 
sports betting market. <clears throat> and they were big advocates of of the re- the repeal of of the existing laws that had it prohibited and then making it allowed, I guess. So if you look at like Europe where sports betting has been regula- regulated in Europe for a very long time, fantasy was never that popular ever at any point mm-hmm. in time, essentially, because you look at sports bet. So I'd say that it certainly has taken a pretty big gut punch from a business perspective for people running fantasy businesses since sports betting was legalized. Um, so it, it, it does exist. Like March Madness is, is probably the quintessential example where mm-hmm. that is like when it's a standalone event bracket styled like that, that is, you know, kind of zeitgeisty once a year. Also, it's like different players every year, right? Because it's like it, it's not as if it's there's not a huge amount of historical da- data necessarily versus um, what you can find in traditional sports. You'll still find fantasy leagues for that that are like unbelievably popular. But the day to day fantasy betting on traditional sports that used to happen like in the US for example is um, is shrinking significantly now that people can sports bet legally Stephen you have done an amazing job I, my mind is blown I actually think I have to lie down I took, took too much new information in but I, I cannot believe the way everything's changed as we close up where can we best follow you and where can we best follow Rivalry yeah, you can. I mean, Rivalry, we're, uh, we actually just put out our mobile app, our iOS app, uh, a few days ago, we announced. So if you go to the App Store and search Rivalry, you will see a brightly colored blue logo with an orange R, and you can download that and download the mobile app and start using Rivalry. Um, and then for myself, I am somewhat active on Twitter, I would say. I probably should be more active, but uh, just my full name. So Stephen with a V, Saul's all one word, and you can follow me on Twitter. I mostly talk about rivalry things and some other stuff sometimes as well. So yeah, you can follow me there. Fabulous. Well, it was great getting to know you. Great hearing your whole journey. I, I Clearly, you're just getting started. So I do want to certainly wish you a continued success moving forward. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of a terrifically patient Stephen Saltz, I am the geezer yelling at the kids to get off my lawn, Andrew Applebaum, saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Trial Legends Podcast. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca.